Hello and welcome to the One Take Show podcast. My name is Kostub and in this episode we are in conversation with Mr. Savigya Vasti. Sir is an associate partner at PSL Advocates and Solicitors in New Delhi. He specializes in commercial dispute resolution. In this episode we are going to talk about a very specific niche topic that is the evolution of section 34 of Arbitration and Conciliation Act 1996. Just a brief idea section 34 provides a recourse to the court against the arbitral award we will also talk about his experience in law school his experience with litigation where he provides us the real life impacts of the various changes that are happening in the arbitration conciliation act especially in the practice of dispute resolution and all these changes that have been brought on because of the pandemic If you like this episode make sure you like share and subscribe to the channel if you have any suggestions or feedbacks write them down in the comment section i would love to read them and ladies and gentlemen without further ado let's jump right in hello and welcome back to the one take show my name is kaushik and joining me is a senior from my law school someone who i have uh, personally looked up to i have worked for and have always been inspired from mr savika vasti thank you so much for joining me on this conversation and i am so so blessed to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you and take this to every law student every listener of the podcast thank you so much for taking time of your really busy schedule thanks a lot for those kind words costo and uh, the kind of work you have been doing is really inspiring i have Thank been you. religiously following your work and the brilliant interviews that you have taken in the past uh, and it's a privilege for me to be on your show so thank you very much sir honestly it's a privilege for me in fact it's a privilege for everyone i i know that we've been in touch for a long long time with respect to this uh, episode especially and it has been a long wait but i think uh, worth it in every respect of the words because the kind of conversation that we are going to take to every listener will really enrich them and perhaps add a lot of value but uh, before we get into yeah. that conversation something that i would like uh, to take to every listener of this podcast is about your journey with law so i obviously know a lot because i am your junior from the university but uh, a big question comes from the fact that what inspired you to do law and what inspired you to stick with law more importantly after all those years and with the practical aspects of law could you please tell us a little bit about that uh well kostub uh, my journey of foreign to law is kind of a cliche you know you have heard that story a lot of times in the sense that it was not my first choice uh which is strange considering that uh, i do come from a family which is which predominantly has lawyers on both the sides both my grandfathers uh were lawyers you know uh, very well reputed in their own right Uh, both uh, uncles from both the side of my family are lawyers or judges. Uh, however, it never really occurred to me as a natural choice because partly because uh, uh, my mother didn't want me to become a lawyer because she had seen her father struggle a lot uh, okay. in his journey in those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she always aspired uh, that you know her son should uh, uh, go and. Uh, become an iit and then but i really knew my worth and intelligence and the length and breadth of it in the sense <laughs> that i knew that <laughs> i i am not so smart as to become an iit but yeah i did prepare uh, for for the engineering entrance exams however uh, my my uncle my father's uh, eldest uh, brother 
he late shri arvind kumar avasti he was a judge of the indore bench of the mp high court okay uh, i got to spend a lot of time uh, when he was uh, hospitalized after his retirement and i got a chance to have those conversations with him where he really guided me and told me that uh, your interests uh, seem to be aligned in the right direction and don't just follow the herd you know mm-hmm. uh, try and become a lawyer i think you'll become a good lawyer Uh, i think okay. i took it to heart uh, <laughs> and uh, i seriously started considering it uh, at the fag end of my uh, 12 standard uh, mm-hmm. studies and curriculum uh, so yeah that is how uh, I, i i first decided that you know i should at least give it a try Uh, after that uh, that was the first year you know when when uh, i i wrote the exam there were no clad there was no clad because clad was introduced yeah. since, uh, from 2008 mm-hmm. so uh, rml nlu entrance exam was the only entrance exam that i had given mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately uh, i got selected and that is how my journey uh, into law began Uh, what happened in rml uh, nlu is is a different story altogether it had, it was a roller coaster ride and what have we'll talk more about it mm-hmm. absolutely and after that uh, before you started working in delhi you've had a very prolific sort of an experience with litigation and uh, i know that yes. personally also well because i think we've had a conversation and in everyone in law school perhaps knows about that but a little bit about your experience there in chatisgarh as in what what was that experience like with litigation Uh, well see i was uh, blessed in a way that i always had this clarity that i wanted to be in litigation or i wanted to be on the dispute side of the practice and not the transactional side okay. so that was pretty clear to me from the college days itself mm-hmm. uh, but i did not stop myself from pursuing uh, transactional or corporate uh, internships you know because i wanted to eliminate every choice uh, that could possibly cloud my judgment later on Okay. So uh, I I in fact had a very inverse journey to begin with because I started my practice with the uh, chambers of a senior counsel at the Supreme Court, Mr. Ravindra Shivastava. Okay. Uh, to be very honest with you, for the first two months I was a completely clueless and lost lawyer in his chambers, uh, figuring out how how things work, how filings work. uh so i i was rightly advised to shadow the club there uh, for the first okay. month of my uh, association in that ch- chamber and that really helped in the sense uh, i i practically got exposed to uh, the everyday rigmarole of the legal practice as to how filings happen how how do you get matters listed those things are very important and later on uh, in the next two years that ensued in that chamber i i was extremely fortunate to uh, to be involved in some very very landmark judgment such as the presidential reference of the 2g uh, scam judgment the cole block judgment we were appearing for the state of chatisgarh and maharashtra in that matter uh, there were a couple of other matters uh, landmark decisions pertaining to the arbitration and Conci- conciliation act so yeah that is how my journey began and but in those two years i realized that uh, i need more grounding 
I need more grounding in the sense uh, I should have an ability uh, to draft petitions myself, to be in the thick of the practice and not just shadow a senior or assist them on research. So mm-hmm. after two very fruitful years of experience at the chamber of Mr. Srivastava, uh, mm-hmm. I kindly uh, took his permission uh, that, sir, I want to go back to the high court in my home state and I wish to pursue litigation there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I think that would give me better exposure uh, in front of the court and I'd also get a chance to commit much more mistakes uh, which I can't commit here. So he very graciously accepted and in fact he was very supportive and he said that uh, you're making the right choice. I wanted to tell you uh, this in the very beginning, but he supported my choice. And uh, yes, after two years, I went back to Chhattisgarh. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started practicing with the chamber there, uh, mm-hmm. but I also got an opportunity uh, to slowly and slowly and st- steadily uh, build my own practice. I got associated with a few companies by the grace of friends. Uh, there was uh, never a dearth of uh, filings or work. Uh, as a young lawyer, you know, constantly faces that struggle. Yeah. So that that part of the journey was really good. Those those one and a half years in Chhattisgarh gave me a lot of confidence in terms of the matters that I could argue before the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also quite privileged in the sense that uh, I became the youngest uh, lawyer there to be on the panel of the state government. So I closely worked with the Office of the Advocate General, uh, which gave me exposure in terms of criminal litigation, uh, which also gave me exposure in terms of service litigation and revenue litigation. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, uh, for the first two years of my journey, I had nothing to do with trial law, so to to speak. Uh, But the next two years uh, in Chhattisgarh saw me doing a lot of trial work as well as a lot of appellate work at the high court level and also some writ matters. Yes. Perfect, perfect. I think uh, one thing that you mentioned here was that you always wanted a freedom to make mistakes. Although I won't make a, a big of a stretch there because I'm yet to make a lot of mistakes, although I'm still making a lot of them here. But uh, the idea that... Uh, one it's important need... to make the right mistakes, I believe. Right. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But I think pushing yourself in the industry and throwing yourself out there in the possibilities is something that every law student should aspire and perhaps can learn from you. Uh, one interesting turn in your career was uh, LLM and where you pursued with respect to disputes and where you were properly attracted towards dispute. Uh, maybe I would love to know a little bit about that because I think uh, that can really inspire a lot of law students to look at LLM from a perspective of someone who either has been associated with litigation or uh, perhaps is trying to make their place in this industry. Um, well, see, I'll, I'll uh, tell you, Kostab, uh, from my own experience, um, a lot of people told me that it was the wrong decision okay. to go and pursue LLM at that juncture of my career because I had already put in, in four years into the profession and right. two years of, uh, one and a half to two years of building my own practice and building my own brand, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Although, uh, you know, two years in, in the scheme of life and things is not such a big time. But at that time, you of course, you know, you take a lot of opinions, uh, uh, your seniors guide you a lot. And I, I, I had the privilege and fortune of being guided by 
by some really really good people in the profession who told me that you know uh, you are litigating you are doing fairly well you should invest more time here if you uh, you know just disappear from the scene it will take uh, a lot of time to again come back and build that name for yourself so okay. llm does not really matter and you are doing the right things mm-hmm. but see i was i am a person who is driven by dissatisfaction uh so uh in the sense that uh i thought that my life had become too easy and uh, a lot of people had already predicted what's going to happen in my life and i was also falling prey to that prediction and i started hating it uh, uh there was this uh, you know academic thirst in me uh, that that uh, kind of propelled me to learn new things because i was getting pigeonholed into into certain set of areas in practice and i thought it's too early for me to be doing that so i ventured out to uh, do in fact a general llm and uh, i had i had absolutely uh, no end game in mind i just wanted to study that was the end game i just wanted to learn new things interact with new people and basically broaden my cultural horizon mm-hmm. uh, so yeah in the middle of uh, in the middle of all this dissuasion i i kind of persisted with my efforts and i was fortunate enough to get admission into the iidr program at uh, national university of singapore that was right. the first uh, batch that they had introduced uh, in the specialization mm-hmm. and i was really attracted by the kind of names that were floated around uh, professor lawrence wu uh, okay. professor Gary Bond, uh, Professor Lucy Reed, Nakul uh, uh, Devan, who was a senior advocate now at the Supreme mm-hmm. Court. Uh, he also used to teach us. So there were big names, and they, these were all successful people and stalwarts in 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 the field of arbitration. So I thought uh, NUS uh, would be a good option for me, uh, mm-hmm. and well, it did uh, prove out to be a very good option. Uh, right. So after four years, in 2016, I ventured out to Singapore. Uh, to learn what international arbitration is <laughs> right right perfect yeah. i think nus is absolutely one of the best universities in the world with respect to disputes or arbitration and uh, the kind of atmosphere that singapore in itself provides for arbitration there's the entire dispute uh, about venue and all and uh, the seat and everything has really highlighted how singapore is so very advanced in their own cultural sort of uh, atmosphere that they provide for arbitration and i could perhaps know a lot of a lot about this because i have had an opportunity to work under you to learn very closely how all of this really plays out in a practical world uh, but to follow up in the previous segment of the conversation i won't really delve deep into uh, what exactly went down in the llm but from a very practical standpoint uh, a question comes in the mind of a potential litigator is how useful is an llm with respect to something that you might have also encountered and might have found an answer on a very personal account so could you please tell us for uh, the opinion of a litigator how useful is an llm um when the utility depends on an individual uh, okay. so to speak um, mm-hmm. Uh, i i i would i would not say that uh, just taking an uh, llm degree would help you get a job 
or uh, it would ultimately result in you getting more clients or it would it would result in some sort of you know uh, conspicuous uh, professional benefit but there are so many intangible aspects to that experience you know first of all it's an experience it's a cultural experience it's an experience where you are exposed to a different pedagogy of studies uh, uh, it's 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 starkly different from what what is followed in india in the sense that you know there's a lot of debate and discussion around ideas uh when things are thoroughly discussed so what what personally i feel that it adds a lot of uh, uh you know armors in your kitty uh, mm-hmm. it does not change you uh, at the core but it does add a dimension to your personality as a lawyer if you can think in 10 different ways or if you can articulate an argument uh, in five different ways uh, if you have uh, sincerely uh, performed in the stint uh, of your studies of those one year um, you would certainly have the potential of developing that edge you know which which helps you think differently which helps you apply uh, yourself in situations differently and also also uh, a facet that you know nobody really talks about uh, it is also a personal growth you know the journey really translates into some sort of personal growth uh, you make lifelong connections with people you would have never met Uh, had you not uh, gone on for that LLM degree abroad, so mm-hmm. I personally uh, feel that it enriched me a lot. It was an enriching experience, and okay. I would thoroughly recommend it to every aspirant. But it is on an individual to make the most out of that experience. The experience for some may be purely academic, as it was for me. Uh, for some, it might be a means to an end uh, to secure uh, a job abroad, uh, or come back to India and pursue a job, or uh, just set up their own independent practice. Right. So, uh, so it does add a value addition. It has a value addition, uh, but but uh, it's not to say that. Uh, it not doing an llm from a fancy university would put you any at any disadvantage okay okay so if an opportunity presents if if uh, you are financially viable if you end up uh, securing a scholarship uh, one must not uh, forego this opportunity perfect i think that explains it as like uh, somehow very succinctly provides us with both kind of an arguments and also gives us an idea <laughs> as to what because obviously this is a this is a conflict that goes in the mind of every possible litigator or someone who's trying to get into the industry uh, this i will now shift to a sort of a switching kind of a conversation where i would ask you about your uh, practical uh, experience a very quick sort of uh, an understanding as to what have you experienced while being associated with one of the fastest growing most popular law firms based in delhi psl uh, solicitors we would like to know when it comes to uh, practicing arbitration in in real life what are the various challenges that you might have faced in the recent times that you would like to highlight for the law students um well uh, i think i can relate my journey at psl to my journey at rml nlu in the sense that when i joined uh, rml nlu as a second batch you know it was a nascent university and we were setting traditions there uh, right. there was not ma- there were not many seniors or people to guide us in the right direction we learned by trial and error but that uh, journey became so personal for us that uh, we would take any win and any lose to heart 
Okay. Uh, you know, there were so many things that that we did for the first time in in that university, and when we see uh, juniors from the university doing so well uh, and taking it forward, it, it it's a sense of pride for for uh, me and all of us who were there at the university. So how I related to my journey at PSL is that uh, when I joined PSL Advocates and Solicitors uh, three years back, mm-hmm. uh, it was a small boutique firm, and mm-hmm. we were trying very hard uh, mm-hmm. to succeed and to grow bigger. Uh, grow bigger not in terms of numbers, but mm-hmm. grow bigger in terms of a knowledge and the kind of advocacy you practice. Practice it with all our hearts. So there was this uh, immediate or uh, swift alignment of of that passion and interest that mm-hmm. I found with my colleagues at PSL. Right. Uh, yes, so everyone uh, in my team is uh, equally dedicated, equally crazy, and equally passionate about what we do here, mm-hmm. and that is what keeps us going day in and day out. Uh, when it comes to the uh, practice of arbitration per se, I think there's so much misinformation being spread in the market right now, and I want okay. to set the record straight for for a lot of aspirants, for a lot of students who think that you know arbitration is this fancy and fascinating field of law where where only great things happen and there's a lot of money to be made, okay. and uh, people just you know they kind of miss the forest for the trees because ultimately arbitration is nothing but a you know it's it's a procedure okay it, at the heart of arbitration it is simply trial advocacy mm-hmm. uh, so any anyone who asks me that uh, you know sir i want to passionate i'm passionate about arbitration i have read all the judgments uh, mm-hmm. but i ask them have you read evidence act have you read contract act do you know your cpc do you know how to exhibit documents do you know how cross examination takes place uh, it, it is also about the art of uh, you know not saying so much then to holding yourself back from saying a lot of things in trial advocacy and those those small intricacies are are something that that you know the students are not focusing on Mm-hmm. Uh, so for students my my advice uh, and piece piece of wisdom would be that religiously uh, you know uh, do trial practice uh, work with trial lawyers mm-hmm. not just get fascinated by arbitration 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 and uh, our practice also it's not that you know we do arbitration day in and day out mm-hmm. we do commercial dispute resolution we do litigation we do recovery suits we do 138 matters so uh, at a very young stage of your career in the first two years it would uh, it would be uh, kind of uh, shooting yourself in the foot if you just constrain yourself to to one one aspect of law that is arbitration right. um yes and i think i speak for every person i think all my peers who have perhaps had a had an opportunity to work with psl that i completely mm-hmm. share that ambition and sort of a, a, a bonhomus atmosphere that was created by all the seniors who provided us especially me with sort of a very uh, on the face of it all those opportunities to realize that there is a huge industry that i still have to learn so much about because uh, more than often what we read in books especially when we are preparing for moots and all we realize in real life arbitration especially as you've just mentioned does not necessarily play out like that so the practical aspects are the same and uh, well, well yeah you you're yeah, right 
So uh, this this actually somehow brings me to uh, an interesting segment of this conversation, which I will really wade into very quickly because this is really interesting for everyone who's even remotely interested in arbitration. But the recent amendments, a lot of criticism, a lot of conversation, debate, discussion has been uh, invited towards Arbitration and Conciliation Act. And one such very significant change has been brought in the purview of uh, uh, Section 34. And you must have personally faced a lot of challenges to the arbitral awards that uh, have seen light of the day with, with respect to all these new grounds surfacing. I would on the very offset like to know about your opinion, a general opinion on what kind of changes has Section 34 seen with respect to arbitration and how has it somehow impacted the practice, if I must say. Um, well, well, uh, thanks for the question. Um, I mean, if you if you kind of uh, trace the trend, the judicial <laughs> trend lately, it has been one of non-intervention and non-interference, and generally upholding the sanctity of arbitral awards that are put out to challenge in the 34. Uh, 34 has always been a very limited jurisdiction, but uh, uh, different courts in India, for for different reasons, have have kind of enlarged the scope now and then. So need uh, was felt, you know, uh, in the 246 Law Commission report also the need was highlighted and then it translated into those amendments in the year 2015 mm-hmm. where certain crucial amendments were made uh, mm-hmm. which, uh, which set out to, uh, you know, uh, formulate the correct position and set out the correct position after some of the uh, judgments by the Honorable Supreme Court and and the vagaries that followed, you know, by by uh, wrong uh, following of those judgments by different high courts. I think the biggest uh, change, according to me, has been in the concept of public policy. You know, as they okay. call it, the unruly horse of public policy. Uh, both the ONGC judgments, the ONGC Sawpipes judgment, and the ONGC Western Gecko judgments. Uh, had uh, unduly expanded the scope of the term public policy, uh, where uh, you know, and it 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 also kind of entailed the patent illegality test, which was misused uh, severely by by courts uh, for for many years, and a lot of arbitral awards were interfered and set aside on this uh, on this ground uh, routinely by courts. So need was felt to, you know, put it in a very, very watertight compartment and that is exactly what the 2015 amendments did. Uh, What one it did was that it took out the test of patent illegality completely from the purview of testing of foreign awards or international commercial awards. That, That ground is only available as a challenge for domestic awards now. Uh, and not uh, as a ground for resisting the enforcement of a foreign award under Section 48. Mm-hmm. The second uh, test, uh, the second change that was introduced was by appending explanation to Section 34 and actually, uh, you know, actually explaining what will constitute a violation of public policy. Okay. So three explanations were appended in the sense that you know, one was that once. Uh, the award is in a conflict with fundamental policy of India law, Indian law. 
mm-hmm. you know then it could be set aside on the ground of public policy now what constitutes fundamental policy of indian law that has been explained beautifully by the supreme court in the sanyong judgment mm-hmm. uh, which essentially relies on the dda and associate builders case and the renu sago power case Uh, that is a topic of entire discussion for some other time uh, but uh, let me just say that the public policy grounds that were available earlier have been done away with there is this greater objectivity to the test uh, which is visible from the amendments and also the interpretation of the amendments by the court mm-hmm. uh, and also the ground of patent illegality Uh, uh you know uh, it cannot it cannot just be simply used by saying that it, any contravention of substantive law would would be would become patently you know would render the word patently illegal it has to be a substantive violation of a uh, of a statute uh, which relates to public policy it has to be contravention of a statute which relates to national economic interest of india it has to be patent illegality when there is extreme perversity when there is mm-hmm. violation of principles of natural justice and where the you know where where uh, there is uh, an interpretation of the contract taken by the arbitrator which is impossible or absolutely absurd and illogical as has been uh, uh, noted by the uh, supreme court recently in the uh, patel engineering case uh, and then uh, and few other cases by the delhi high court recently so mm-hmm. what i see is this trend shifting from uh, you know intervention at every step of the way mm-hmm. to very very watertight pigeon holes being created by the okay. legislature and uh, the courts also taking a pro arbitration stance mm-hmm. uh, to reflect international best practices right right so and uh, yes. as 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 you mentioned that there has been sort of uh, an involvement there has been a change with respect to the understanding of public policy as it was previously introduced although like you've mentioned that's it's it's a conversation for uh, uh, for a different perhaps uh, it it might take a lot of depth when it comes to understanding the concept of public policy but uh, for someone who's trying to understand the real crux as to how has it potentially changed the nature of section 34 could you please tell us a little bit about how the public policy uh with respect to how patented legality and all of this is to be interpreted has somehow changed with section 34 um well uh, i you know uh, i can straight away take you to the relevant portion of the statute you know mm-hmm. if if uh, if we may just read uh 34 uh 2b says mm-hmm. that an award may be set aside if the court finds that the arbitral award is in conflict with the public policy of india Mm-hmm. now there is an explanation one that has been appended which says that for the avoidance of any doubt it is clarified that an award is in conflict with the public policy of india only if one the award the making of the award was induced uh, or affected by fraud or corruption or was in violation of section 75 or 81 or it is in contravention of the fundamental policy of indian law mm-hmm. or it is in conflict with the most basic notions of morality or justice okay now the, this explanation was not present earlier mm-hmm. the public policy test was formulated by the supreme court uh, in the ongc uh, judgment mm-hmm. and it encapsulated vague concepts as interest of india violation okay. of substantive law mm-hmm. uh, you know which 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 was which lacked the objectivity 
okay and which created a lot of uh, potential for abuse and it was abused now okay. what courts through subsequent judgment through interpretation what they have said is uh, you know they have clearly earmarked what constitutes fundamental policy of indian law okay, okay. okay. so so once those those tests have been earmarked then any court while while testing an award in the 34 can make that assessment on the basis of those rational objective principles right mm-hmm. and the concept of you know the most basic notions of morality and justice refers to such instances you know which completely shocks the conscience of the court uh, mm-hmm. and in fact the court has also you know provided certain illustrations that uh, when an issue uh, is completely disregarded by a tribunal when it is raised or agitated there is no finding with respect to that issue or when a document has been uh, you know taken from a party in violation of principles of natural justice and no opportunity has been provided mm-hmm. so such uh, objective delineation has clearly you know helped uh, curb the expanding scope of 34 provisions right right and sir. when it comes to the test of patent illegality as i said earlier what constitutes patent illegality is also objective now in the sense of in the sense that it's extreme perversity it's it's a uh, violation of substantive law uh, mm-hmm. it's violation of the arbitration act uh, section 3013 and 28 Three, uh, 28 1 in particular right uh, it is also the contravention of any substantive law that that is so important to indian law that it cannot be deviated or derivated from right right, right sir uh, okay. uh, although I, i i still argue that some sort of subjective uh, scope of subjective interpretation is available with the courts and as we grow further and more judgments come mm-hmm. uh, this test would keep narrowing down now okay. what whether it is whether a blind as i always say whether a blind following or fascination with a pro arbitration approach is is good in the long run or not that remains a question and right. which is a contentious question and i have different and radical views there mm-hmm. uh, for which i might be castigated for if i express them so freely so <laughs> so let's hold that back Uh, but right. but i believe that uh, sometimes such absurd and erroneous awards are being passed by ad uh, hoc tribunals especially that uh, we we need a system where there is greater scrutiny of awards rather than uh, lessening the scope of intervention judicial intervention right right and uh, somehow like i although i would love to know those particular opinion of yours uh, perhaps not on this video conferencing call maybe i can call you on a separate occasion and learn about them but uh, uh, there is a different uh, uh, sort of a change that has been made with respect to limitation that has been encapsulated within the purview of section 34 uh, could you please tell us about what is your opinion upon uh, the changes that have been made with respect to the idea of limitation in this section um well the supreme court has been uh, quite clear on the subject and you know the amendment 343 gives you a time limit of uh, 90 plus 30 days to file a challenge to an arbitral award in 34 now the supreme court has interpreted that those 90 days means three calendar months which might mean 89 days 90 91 or 92 depending on the situation and not clear 90 days mm-hmm. uh the law is also that this time period of limitation starts running from the time uh, the party is in actual receipt of the award from the arbitral tribunal mm-hmm. um 
another guiding principle when it comes to limitation is that the 30 days time period of the extension which a party gets is not just there for the asking uh, sufficient cause has to be shown by the party to seek that extension of extra 30 days for okay. uh, filing the section 34 application mm-hmm. um Mm, yeah well uh, these these are the most crucial issues i think one issue that uh, that came up uh, in the 2019 amendment was that uh, you know the uh, no automatic stays uh, were being granted uh, by the amendments in 2015 so, so the provision of automatic stay was taken away however in 2019 the court again uh, the parliament again you know sort of uh, Watched it up somehow and brought it back into the statute, which was authoritatively overruled by the Supreme Court. And now the position is that there is no automatic stay on the awards as soon as the 34 is filed. So that is right. the position with regard to automatic stays. Um, well, uh, as far as limitation is concerned, that again is 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 uh, quite a technical subject. We can go on discussing it by way of various precedents. Mm-hmm. uh but i think this is sufficient for a discussion right now perfect perfect and uh how yeah. about like when when we see so many different changes and as you have uh, somehow expressed that all of these changes have modified how section 34 is to be read interpreted and how it is now affecting the practical aspects of arbitration i would like to learn from your personal experience when we talk about issues like extreme perversity when we talk about issues like limitation or all these changes that are happening in general with the arbitration and amendment act perhaps not just section 34 but in general all these practical aspects what do you have but is there any experience of yours where you must have find these changes affecting the practical aspects of arbitration um uh, well yes well yes i mean in the sense that uh, arbitral tribunals some of the mischievous arbitral tribunals are taking a lot of leeways because they know their awards are not susceptible <laughs> to a valid challenge in the <laughs> in the 34 but jokes mm-hmm. apart uh, see the the approach of the courts have uh, really held the practice of arbitration okay. uh Uh, uh there has been a greater uh, you know there has been greater uh, harmony in the interpretation that is being adopted by courts mm-hmm. uh when it comes to arbitral tribunals uh because the sacrosanct principle of competence competence is is mm-hmm. being you know and section 5 principles are being religiously adhered to by courts so the tribunals are getting more and more leverage to you know conduct the proceedings in their own manner and most of the times it's done fairly impartially uh, and sufficient opportunities been provided to the parties to adduce evidence but there are times when uh, you know something completely absurd happens right. uh, uh but yeah i think the uh, according to me what we need is is a uh, uh, greater and greater uh, improvement and uh, furtherance in the direction of institutional arbitrations because okay. institutional one of the great successes uh, i believe for for international arbitration uh, has been these robust institutions which which mm-hmm. so beautifully and seamlessly conduct arbitration from beginning to end and there's such great great level of scrutiny involved in every step of the way uh, icc in fact has has a review of the award mm-hmm. 
past you know the court uh, examines it from all aspects and sees that there is absolutely uh, no leeway in in terms of a 34 challenge available mm-hmm. so so that that kind of uh, institutional framework is the need of the hour in india uh, mm-hmm. and all the malaises so to say or all the impediments and all the growth and hurdles and roadblocks according to me are being posed by by uh by the prevalence of uh, ad hoc arbitrations in india i mean okay. multi crore uh, arbitrations being pending for 5 years 7 years mm-hmm. uh, uh non following of the time limits imposed under the act Mm-hmm. Uh, let me tell you uh, i have not been a part of single arbitration domestic arbitration which was in which an award was rendered in 12 months or even 18 months so to speak okay. uh, yes however the situation is starkly different when it comes to uh, international arbitration you know timelines are strictly followed there is greater amount of uh, professionalism there is greater amount uh, of um discipline i would say discipline okay. and a respect for the process uh, which which i sometimes feel is lacking in the indian scenario mm-hmm. right right yes i think that gives us a very interesting insight into like how exactly is this industry evolving with respect to the preferences of the professionals who are actually practicing in the industry perhaps from your own personal experience understanding how all of these changes are affecting it uh, one last question before we wrap this conversation up is obviously with respect to the covid-19 the pandemic and uh, which is really sort of uh, uh, is making a lot of law students the fresh aspirants who are going to enter the industry a little uncomfortable with respect to the opportunities available to them especially in the disputes areas uh, arbitration and every litigation and all these areas uh, what opinion or advice would you have for all these aspirants with respect to how can they adapt with the changes in this industry well uh, we all are grappling with the you know severity of the situation i mean uh, it has gotten a little better now in the sense that uh, uh, we 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 have uh, been forced to shun our patterns learned over so many years unhealthy patterns so the journey according to me is more about unlearning than learning uh, we need to unlearn uh, so many aspects that that you know the patterns that we have formed over years and it's time for innovation it is mm-hmm. time to be positive it is time to uh just take stock of the situation and ask yourself uh what works what is working it is to be constantly be vigilant about about uh, the market mm-hmm. uh, so for for law students also i mean the basic things won't change things like you know hard work tenacity resilience and persistence uh these these aspects will never go out uh, mm-hmm. you know that remains a integral part of of uh, our profession and any success has to be built on 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 the on the strength of hard work and your efforts and and constant and consistent dedication to the profession but uh in terms of what has changed uh we uh, we have gotten more used to the idea of assimilation of technology into legal practice 
Okay. Uh, I I can see uh, a generation of lawyers uh, much older than me uh, mm-hmm. taking to the changes very smoothly. The judges have been uh, extremely extremely proactive and have uh, you know have have unlearned their old habits and uh, and are in fact uh, at times having fun with lawyers by muting them whenever <laughs> they are making uh, okay. a persistent <laughs> argument. Uh, so uh, according to me uh, the journey has definitely been uh, tough uh, mm-hmm. uh, it has created a lot of hurdles for individual practitioners and there were some some hurdles in the uh, in, in in the workflow in the normal workflow that that law firms also had but through constant innovation and keeping a finger on the pulse of the latest developments i think any law student or any young lawyer can also build from strength to strength Uh, and and set realistic goals for themselves uh, short term goals not very long term goals because uh, what i have learned through the pandemic is uh, you can have all the plans in the world but they they can simply go for a toss uh, uh, if if your destiny thinks otherwise or has chosen otherwise for you so it's always better to have short term goals uh, and work towards them and mm-hmm. build from one short term goal to the other and keep innovating keep learning and most importantly keep on learning perfect perfect sir absolutely i think this is the kind of conversation which will absolutely benefit so many law students as you mentioned it is all about earn learning and learning again uh, gospel words which will benefit so many students something that i personally will try to live up to i am so excited about arbitration always willing to learn but there are a lot of things as we have observed in this chat that i had absolutely no clue about but thank you for this conversation that i personally will be watching this episode again making notes for myself and i think every law student who tunes into this episode will benefit tremendously from this conversation do you have any closing remarks for our listeners i'm so glad that i could be of some help i'd i'd just like to conclude on a parting remark by quoting one of my favorite couplets ye ishq nahi aasa itna hi samajh lijiye aag ka darya hai aur paar karke jana hai kya baat so for every law student out there uh, uh, i just want to say that the journey is very fruitful the journey is very rewarding but the journey is also very testing so don't be afraid keep learning keep making your sincere efforts tenacity is what matters at the end of the day and if you uh, you know if you ride the storm for the first 2 3 years if you if you're brave enough this profession will reward you in so many ways uh, that you can't even imagine it will really uh, be a satisfaction to your soul your heart uh, and of course uh, I hope for for you and for all the law students out there you become very successful practitioners and earn a lot of fame and recognition and also money. <laughs> Thank you best. so much. Thank you so much sir to all my listeners I think it is important that I highlight that I personally have had an amazing experience working under sir's guidance. I have been guided, I have been taught, I have been scolded by sir. I have also been given such an enriching experience with respect to working with PSL advocates and solicitors exposing me to the entire industry also making me realize there is tremendous amount of things that I need to learn and uh, with this conversation i think it only gives me a desire to perhaps find an opportunity to work under your guidance again thank you so much for this amazing opportunity sir i had a wonderful time i hope you had a good time too i had a great time kostu thank you so much thank, thank you. you thank you so much